Well, church, we're, we're finally here. We're starting our study in the book of Daniel. We've been talking about it now for a couple of weeks. And, and we, I wanted to kind of wait until after Labor Day because everybody's still traveling a whole lot, so I didn't want to start until after Labor Day. Yeah, yeah, as we begin the book of Daniel, I, I mean, it, it's, it's a book that is, it's kind of a unique book in our Bible. On, on the one hand, most of us are very anchored in, in aspects of the story, Right? I mean, we've been hearing these stories since we were the smallest of children, and they show God's faithfulness to his humble and faithful people, right? Very first chapter, we have Daniel and his friends. And they stand up, and they don't eat the king's food. They want to remain faithful to God, and God blesses them, and he gives them wisdom, and they move up in the kingdom. We see in chapter 2, Daniel coming to God, looking for the answers for a vision he's not even heard or understands. God gives it to him as he comes in humble faith. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stand before the entire country, the three people who refuse to bow down to the king's idol. They choose faithfulness over state-sponsored idolatry. In chapter 6, Daniel is is thrown into the lion's death, but God preserves him and protects him because he chose humble, dependent faith over his personal safety. These are the things that we know in the book. They're the clearest of stories. They can be some of the most fun stories to teach and to preach on. But if you've spent any time in the book of Daniel, you, you know that this book can, contains some very difficult passages, right? <laughs> it contains some really difficult stuff. Which is why I actually want to start our study on this series with maybe about 12 minutes of some difficulties. We're going to kind of start with a little bit of nerd work. I apologize for that, but it's kind of necessary, I think. Let let me just share with you one one author's introduction to his commentary on the book of Daniel. He says this, there are a good number of reasons not to write a commentary on the book of Daniel. (laughs) He goes on to say, for one thing, going into print on the book of Daniel makes it all too easy for one's reader of whatever stripe to relegate one's work to either the kooks or the nincompoops. After all, the book is an interpretive minefield and wherever one comes down on various questions, he is sure to disappoint his readers. And as your pastor, I feel the same way. But it begs the question, what makes the study so difficult? I, I want to just highlight two areas this morning and, and I'm doing this because I think it's good for us to be aware of both of them. Number, number one is there is a consensus among critical scholarship that we need to address, number one. And number two, we got to address the fact that, that there are conflicting views among conservative, gospel-loving Christians who hold to the inspiration and the errancy and authority of God's word. There's differences. So there's, there's two things I want to get, then we're going to go to the message. So hard work first, then we get to the fun work, okay? So, so as most of us as Christians, we've read at least most of the book of Daniel, and we read through it, and, and it gives us every reason to believe as we read the book that it occurred during the Babylonian and Persian empires. It happened to Daniel and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It happened with Nebuchadnezzar. It happened with Belshazzar. It happens with Darius. Like, these are all the people in the book we expect it happened during the historical period it took place. 
We read the book and we expect it was most likely compiled and finalized around Daniel's death, which was probably about 530 B.C. And I don't believe there's any real reason to doubt those simple conclusions. But it's good to know that if you read most scholars today, unfortunately some who do even consider themselves evangelical scholars, they are convinced that Daniel, of, or I say a high view of Daniel as I just described, is a patently naive and historically inaccurate view. Let me read another scholar's introduction to the book of Daniel. All but the most conservative, and you can kind of put in that little let tone of voice, okay? All but the most conservative scholars now accept the conclusion that the book of Daniel is not the product of the Babylonian era, that is, in the 6th century B.C. Rather, it reached its present form in the 2nd century B.C. This means that Daniel is a figure of legend and not a historical person. Okay? Like, we need to be aware of that. And the reason they argue for it, and this is like, like I'm really like crunching this down really tight. The really, it comes down to the fact of chapter 11 is, is a big key part of the book of Daniel. Because in chapter 11, when we get there, I don't even know how I'm going to preach that chapter yet. It's really hard. But it covers a whole lot of prophecy about a whole lot of kingdoms around Israel. And it happens during like the Greek Empire, most of it, and, and they look at that and they go, that list is far too exact for everything that happened in history for it to have not been written after the fact. They're like, there's no way, there's no way that could have been revealed ahead of time. So that's one half of their argument. Then the other half of their argument is they get to the very end of chapter 11, verses 40 through 45, and they say, well, we think that this is written about this evil king, Antiochus Epiphanes. You might have heard about the guy. We think it's, it was written as a prophecy about his death, but it really didn't happen. Like, like the way it's written, they're like, he didn't, die in, he didn't die in Israel, he died in Persia, therefore it's a false prophecy, therefore this whole book is false. So that, that's, that's, I mean, that's like really crunching it down. And, and on, on, on account of this, they, they, they would say, well, you know what, it was written as a book about 165 B.C. during this evil king Antiochus' reign, and it was written as a piece of religious propaganda to encourage everybody to remain faithful to God. So they say, it's a great book, it's encouraging people to remain faithful to God, but it's all fiction. Yeah. Let me just give you two quick things on that. Number one, you might have heard about the Dead Sea Scrolls. Maybe. We, we have copies of Daniel. And, and this is fragments of copies. From like eight different copies of Daniel in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And some of those scrolls are from 120 BC. It's like less than 50 years from the, the critical scholars' proposed writing date to there being so many copies. There's copies in Qumran. It's like, it's like there's, no, there's no printing press, there's no internet, there's no way to disseminate this quickly. And for, for all of Israel, especially the Essenes at Qumran, to be considering this scripture. Like, 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 like the dating doesn't even work well for the argument. And the other part is, is when they're reading Daniel, they don't kind of read it well with the rest of their Bible. Even their own book. Because at the, at the, where, where they would come to Antiochus at the end, and we'll get this in chapter 11, 
But where they get upset is, is chapter 11, verse 40, they overlook the fact that it actually begins with the phrase, at the time of the end. Where, where, where the prophecy is kind of like all of a sudden leapfrogging out to the future. In fact, the New Testament authors actually support this view of, of this leapfrogging forward. Revelation 13, verse 7, tells us about the beast who was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Book of Revelation saying, there's a coming evil king. At the end of time, he's going to reign, he's going to rule, he's going to do horrible things, and God's going to conquer him. And those are the things that are recorded in those final verses of chapter 11. You'll see when we get there. And even Paul uses terminology that is coming out of Daniel in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 when he says, let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come, that, that last day, will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, is revealed. The son of destruction. And here's where he uses very much Daniel language who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. So, I crunched a whole lot in there. I compressed it because I know probably half of you are already asleep. But we need to kind of address that on the front side to say, hey, guess what? Critical scholars don't think that we should be reading this as scripture. And I want to let you know that like, I fully believe this is scripture. Okay? So, so that, that, that's, that's the one hand. But on the other hand, you know, we got people who probably even right now are getting excited like, yes, we're talking about prophecy. I can't wait to talk about prophecy. I've been reading prophecy for 20 years. Right? And, and the problem is, like, Christians who love Jesus and believe in the inspiration of God's word don't all interpret, don't interpret all the prophecies the same. Has anybody ever run into that? <laughs> you know, we don't. And, and so let me just take a little bit of time on, on that point. Because when we come to books like this, the, the, the questions that are behind the study are what approach are we going to use? Are we going to take a dispensational approach, a progressive dispensational approach, a covenantal approach, or a progressive covenantal approach to the book? And progressive here does not mean liberal, it means revealed slowly over time. I mean, I mean, even though you may not know what any of those terms mean, and if you don't, it's all okay. I'm not going to use them a lot. Hopefully not much at all. But, but, those terms are approaches to interpretation that influence how you are already thinking about prophecy. If you grew up in a Baptist, a non-denominational church, a Calvary Chapel church, or an Assemblies of God church, or maybe you, maybe you worked your way through that whole Left Behind series, um, you, you grew up under a dispensational framework. Okay? That, that's a dispensational framework. Now, if you grew up in a Presbyterian, a Lutheran, or a Christian Reformed church, you grew up under a covenantal framework. That, that, that's why sometimes people who, who are talking about the same thing can get in this conflict because they don't realize that they grew up under different frameworks of how we talk about prophecy. And, and, and in case you're wondering which of these four are liberal, which are right, and which is wrong, the simple answer is that conservative scholars hold all four approaches. 
And, and even our doctrinal statement allows for all four positions as long as they believe this. Article 9 of our doctrinal statement. We believe in the personal, bodily, and glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ. The coming of Christ at a time known only to God, it demands constant expectancy, and it's our blessed hope, and it motivates the believer to godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission. Okay? So, so those are things that are gospel essentials, and we absolutely affirm those. Any view that does not affirm those, we would have a problem with. Okay? And, and if you want to know how, about those, how those views relate to one another, we actually have some books in the bookstore. Um, and you can read that. Um, I mean, honestly, I'm not the greatest Q&A guy for every position because I haven't held every position. So as we go to the study, let me just, let me just kind of give you a couple highlights. I think everybody wants to know, like, where's my pastor when we're going through the study? What's he thinking? So you're not reading between the lines. And then we'll get to the message of the book. Number one. I'm coming to the book from what what would be called a progressive covenantal framework. That is, I see God slowly working out his plan over time to redeem mankind through the covenantal structure in the Bible. That's that's what it means. Number two, in in, in regards to Christ's return. Like, like, okay, where does my pastor stand on that? I, I would hold to a position known as historic premillennialism. There's a book on that out there. And that is, Jesus will return after the tribulation, but before the millennium. Okay? So, and if you don't know those terms, it's okay. And finally, a question that, that I get asked often, got, got asked recently, but it's, it's a common question, is, is how about the church in Israel? How do I think about those? Well, well, I'd say I don't believe that God has one plan for the church and a different plan for Israel. And I also don't believe that the church has replaced Israel. What, what, I, what I believe is that the church, what I what actually say what I believe is that believing Jews and Gentiles are united into the one people of God. That, that's how I see God working out his plan. Passages I would look at in that would be Ephesians 2 and Romans chapter 11. So just, just for the people who those things are something you've read a lot on and you, you, you wonder about, you now know. And for everybody else who didn't even have those categories, we're going to actually move now to the message of the book. <laughs> I know that's a really weird introduction to this book, but I don't know any other better way to just cover some of those questions and to be honest in front of everybody about where we're at. So I apologize if anybody fell asleep. So why are we going into this book if there's so many problems in it? Why? What, what truth and what encouragement can a book hold to people who are living 2,600 years after it was written? What does it have to do with this? Especially. Especially since so many Christians disagree about certain aspects of its interpretation. Like, like why would we even bother? That's what I want to take time with now. And it's actually the really important question. Why would we go to this book? Well, as I've read this book over and over again over the past few months, I've become more and more convinced that the book of Daniel can provide us as American Christians with kind of hope and security and encouragement that we 
desperately need. We need it. Simply put, it's, I mean, it, it is getting harder and harder to live as a committed Christian, isn't it? It's getting harder. In, in many ways, we, we can feel like we're living in a, in a modern-day Babylon, even though we've never been captured, we've never lost and been conquered by another country, and we have not been exiled to another land. We, we can feel like we're living as exiles. We look at around the, in, in our nation and our, our countries polarized. Our government is increasingly authoritarian. Our, our lives and our workplaces are being regulated into oblivion. Our larger cities are sliding into anarchy. And, and as Christians, our, our steadfast commitment to God's word, something that was really valued, even by most unbelievers in our nation for, for, for a couple centuries, is being increasingly viewed as a malicious act of bigotry and hatred. And in the midst of this frustration and this spiritual confusion, we're tempted every election cycle to put all of our time and our energy and our hope into expressly political solutions. Not saying we don't care about politics. We, we vote. We care. But we're, but we're being encouraged to put our hope in those things. And it can leave us all the more hopeless when the election doesn't go our way. Yet this is exactly where the book of Daniel meets us. It meets us in the midst of our spiritual disorientation of our cultural confusion and our political frustration by anchoring our hopes and our hearts in the glorious truth that the kingdoms of men will rise and fall but the kingdom of God will stand forever. That's what this book anchors us in. The big message and and I know we talked about some nerdy stuff going into this But as we walk through this book, church, my goal is to be anchored into this bigger message. This isn't going to be about peering between the lines, trying to decipher things that that we can't hopefully decipher as well as we'd like to. But But about affirming the things that are most clear in this book. In fact, let me illustrate how this works out in the book by highlighting four key movements in the book that I gleaned from my my friend and my Old Testament professor, Jason DeRoshi. Four movements in in this storyline that helps us understand how does this main idea work out in the book of Daniel. So my goal this morning is I want you to see the whole book. How's the whole book working together to tell one story? Number one, the first movement in the book is that is is Daniel wants us to see that God deserves to be worshipped because he sovereignly rules over all things. He sovereignly rules over all things. We, we see this first point very clearly in the very first two verses of the book. So you see, from a purely man-centered worldview, the king of Babylon attacked the king of Judah, Right? Generals made plans and real soldiers fought and they died. 
Daniel 1.1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he besieged it. Now, Now, was Jehoiakim a foolish king? Yes, he was. Did he provoke the attack? Yes, he did. Was Israel's army in any position to defeat the Babylonian army? Not on its best day. Yet who ultimately is behind this defeat and this development? Who is behind all of it? Verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand and some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them into the land of Shinar and the house of his God. And he placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Who did it? God did it. The defeat, not only the defeat, but the desecration of the temple itself. It was God's work. But why? Why would God even do this? Why? It's his covenant people. It's his holy temple. Why would verse 2 go out of its way to say God did this? because if you've read the prophets very well you know there's been a very deep spiritual problem in Israel for a long time the very last book written of the prophets before, the, before they're captured is Jeremiah Jeremiah says this chapter 2 starting in verse 9 these are the words of the Lord listen closely therefore I still contend with you declares the Lord and with your children's children I will contend for cross to the coast of Cyprus and see or, or send to the land of Kedar and, and examine with care. See if there's ever been such a thing. Has any nation changed its gods? E- even though they're not gods? But my people have changed their glory for what does not profit. Be, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fount of living waters, and they've hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. This is why. See, it's important to see this because it helps us see that even though, even though the events of this book occur in Babylon and they, and they involve two empires, the Babylonian and the Persian Empire, it helps us see that the lessons in this book are ultimately directed towards the people of Israel so that they might recognize God's faithfulness and see God's power and repent of their sin and turn back to him to see that he's truly worthy of their praise, of their worship, of their devotion. He fulfills his promises. Something that he repeats through the book. But that brings us to the second movement of the book. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. We we see this played a number of times. I'm just going to grab a couple in the book. God humbled the arrogant and prideful king of Judah. At the very beginning, stripping him of his kingdom and his power because he refused to listen to Jeremiah's constant warning to repent. God humbles Nebuchadnezzar later on. 
He gives amazing grace to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they refuse to worship the statue of gold. But for Nebuchadnezzar, that's not enough. Right? He, he keeps going. His pride keeps growing. He gets a warning from God. He doesn't listen to God. And he goes seven years where he lives as an animal. Chapter 4. And he finally comes to his senses. Listen to the words of Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of that seven years, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. My reason returned to me. I blessed the Most High and I praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will amongst the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can say to him, what have you done? Verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all of his works are right, all of his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. In fact, this theme gets repeated right, right after Nebuchadnezzar. We have his son, Belshazzar, one of his descendants, throwing a lavish party. We're told he's praising the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone at this party instead of God. And what happens is mysterious hand shows up, writes on the wall. They can't figure it out. They bring Daniel in. Two verses. Chapter 5, verse 22. You, his son, Belshazzar. This is Daniel speaking. You haven't humbled your heart. Notice humility again. Though you knew all of this, you've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. You've praised the gods of silver and gods of gold and bronze and wood and stone. And they don't hear and see and, and know, but the God in whose your hand, in, pardon me, the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you haven't honored. He's saying there's a God. He holds the very smallest aspect of your being. He upholds everything and you have not honored him. And what happened that very night according to Daniel's interpretation? That very night we find verse 31, 30 and 31. Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, is killed. Darius the Mede receives the kingdom when he is about 62 years old. Now this is really helpful for us as Christians because it reminds us that wicked kings and wicked kingdoms are never independent of God. Never independent. But the book gets even better and it encourages us with the glorious truth that evil kingdoms and evil men will not rule forever. And, and that's one of the hard things. We kind, of, we kind of feel it growing and increasing and we wonder, when's it going to change? Doesn't God care about justice? And we see that theme building in the book. But then we get news that God's kingdom is going to triumph. And how's it going to get triumph? It's going to triumph through the Messiah's saving death and his everlasting dominion. That, that's how it's going to happen. It's going to happen through this anointed one. 
We got promises of Jesus in this book. Bringing his kingdom. In fact, this theme is so important in this book, it shows up in the very first vision. Very first vision. We'll get to this very quickly. Nebuchadnezzar sees a giant image, right? We got the head of gold, and we got the silver, and we got the bronze, and then we got the iron, and then we got the iron mixed with clay, right? The big old image standing there. Daniel tells him that the head was Babylon, the gold, and each part moving down is, are these successive kingdoms moving through history. The, the fourth kingdom of which would be incredibly destructive and brutal. Yet, yet what then happens with this image? We see a stone cut without human hands representing a fifth kingdom. It's a superior kingdom. And when it comes, it hits the statue, it destroys it, it gets blown into the wind like chaff, it's gone. And out of this rock grows a mountain that slowly fills the earth, this fifth kingdom. Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, in those days, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. It'll never be destroyed. It'll never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all the kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. So we're not just looking at the kingdoms of men, we're looking at the kingdoms of God, the kingdom of God. We, we see the same story unfold in chapter 7. We get these four human kingdoms here all portrayed as, as beasts coming out of the sea. First is a lion, the second is a bear, the third is a leopard. The fourth simply described as a terrifying, dreadful, and exceedingly strong beast. But the vision doesn't end with the exceedingly strong, brutal beast. It transitions to the future kingdom. Daniel 7, verse 11. And I looked because of the sound of the great words of that horn was speaking, and I looked. The beast was killed! its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Kingdom of God. And it clarifies two important realities for us. God's kingdom will triumph and God's kingdom will triumph through a victorious son of man. See, you see we, we, don't, we, don't, we, don't, we don't get the clarity necessarily of Jesus at this point in time, but it's pointing forward to Jesus, to whom God gives dominion and glory and a kingdom. Here in chapter 7, it's saying, and chapter 2, it's saying God wins. No matter what we see going on around us, God wins. But at the very same time, the message of this book says it's not going to happen immediately. And it's not going to happen without great cost. We see that in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. 
this very heavy prophecy about 70 weeks. We're told 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring into everlasting righteousness and to seal both vision and prophet and to anoint the most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, a prince, there shall be 70 weeks. Then for the 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and a moat, yet but in a troubled time. After the 62 weeks an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. In Hebrew in this text here. He shall be cut off, but not for himself. Pointing forward to Jesus. So the warning is this. The kingdoms of mankind will become increasingly brutal. The kingdoms of mankind will be increasingly faithless. It's a warning that faithfulness to God at times and periods of history will cost you your life. We, we've seen that in the history of the church. But, but even in this, we have the promise. The book gives us a promise that death cannot prevent God's people from receiving his promise of everlasting joy. And that's because when we get to the fourth and final step in Daniel chapter 12, we find that God will prove his triumph by raising his saints from death to life. It's where the book ends. The book ends in resurrection. It ends in glory. It ends in victory. Daniel chapter 12, starting in verse 1. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, listen to this, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. It's the first revelation in God's word, the disclosure of the final judgment. In clear text, Notice this entire book and its final point makes it clear that human beings will never be able to legislate nor mandate a utopian society. We will never be able to create heaven on earth. We can't. But even more as we read this book, we see that a time of severe trouble is somewhere over the horizon in human history. Yet it doesn't end with that. It doesn't end with hopelessness. It ends on the promise of resurrection glory. It ends on the promise that God's kingdom is coming. And he's going to reign over all things. And it ends on the promise not only that Jesus is going to return that a kingdom is going to be forever established, but that God is going to bring justice on every act of evil that was ever committed. Every act of injustice that we see in the world and we shrink back on and we wonder, how can that go on? 
How can that go unpunished? The ending of Daniel tells us that there will be justice. Justice is coming. Yet for the Christian, it reminds us that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. As Paul cries out at the end in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 35, he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Daniel could speak the same words. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it's written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. No, Paul says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation shall be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ. That's what the promise of resurrection gives us. It doesn't give us a promise that we won't die in this world. It doesn't give us a promise that we won't go through incredibly hard or brutal times as many Christians have and currently are experiencing in this world in a way that we can't even fathom in America. See, friends, in closing, this is the message of the book of Daniel. The kingdoms of men may rise and fall, but the kingdom of God will stand forever. Where where is our hope in the hopelessness of this world? Where is our anchor in the storms of life? It's in this. Jesus has already won. Jesus is reigning on the throne today. The kingdom is already. Jesus is reigning already. He's on the throne. But there's a not yet to the kingdom. That's, that's the hard part. That's the stress. That's the difficulty. The kingdom is now. Jesus has won. But it is not experienced in the full orbed promises of God until Jesus returns. And there's coming a day when Jesus is going to vindicate his people, he's going to judge the wicked, and he's going to establish his church for, I should say, his kingdom on earth forever. You know, the challenge that we face as Christians, and we face it every day, is the challenge of what it means to walk in faith and to walk in hope while we wait for the promise to arrive. The promise is sure. God never fails. The difficulty is believing while we wait. Let's close more prayer.